this very special interview with uh you know the the word legend gets thrown out a lot seth a lot of people get called legend forever but this guy forever they can return to forever this is stanley clark four-time grammy award winner who's been a bassist since back in the late 60s he formed return to forever with chick korea chick became a very important person in Stanley Clark's development, as we learned, he, uh, Chick Corea, who actually was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts, Chick Corea, he packed the car. an amazing and influential keyboardist who played with Miles in the late 60s. What more do you need to know? But he, Lenny White, and Al DiMiola were not the original Return to Forever, but they're considered the classic lineup of Return to Forever. And um, they had some hits, including School Days. You know, they had the jazz band that had some hits, they were very successful. He played with everybody. And he's, he still seems so young, even though he's one of the elders now in a lot of ways. But I wouldn't call him elder, but I'm saying he he's one of the elder jazz cats that that's still around, and he's not old, you know? And he does the Pass It Forward thing. Chick oh, Korea, I really sound stupid. <laughs> Chick Corea inspired him to write, and now he's doing the same thing with young players with his new CD, The Message. Oh, and the band he played with, with that, that's oh on gosh. The Message, the band, they were phenomenal. Uh, the tabla player, I really enjoyed that. 
I went to both shows. It was pretty stunning. Um, we'll talk about that at the uh, outro. Yeah, at the, we, we would hang on to the outro. Seth went to Halloween. I saw Dylan. I saw Bob Weir. You, you might have seen my review on relics.com. But first, before we go into anything more, ladies and gentlemen, a message from our sponsor. Yes, Seth, as people might have noticed uh, last episode, Ben and Jerry's has joined the Osiris family. Welcome, Ben and Jerry's, legendary ice cream company. There's that legend word again, and it does apply here once again. I've been eating Ben and Jerry's since I was in college. Yeah, we can all tell. <laughs> I'll tell you, even if Cherry Garcia wasn't named after Jerry, I would love that. The, the dark chocolate, the hunks of cherry, and the cherry ice cream. But they have a new ice cream. They've collaborated with the band Fish. I think some of our listeners are familiar with the band, the Baker's Dozen, those guys. They did, they did that whole run and only repeated one song. Amazing. Uh, they uh, collaborated with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation, and they've created It's Ice. It's cold as ice. Cream. It is a caramel malt ice cream with almond toffee pieces, fudge fish, and a caramel swirl. Mm, all I want is a taste. But here's the thing, folks. Act all fast, act now. The only way you can get this. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is a very limited, you're going to be able to, the packaging comes with a very limited t-shirt, which was designed by Jim Pollock. And a portion of the proceeds, which you know is a, I'm a huge fan being a auctioneer. Proceeds, rocktioneer. Your rocktioneer. And the portion of the proceeds here are going to an organization which we really, really do love, and they're called the Water Wheel Foundation. And the only way to get this. Yeah, you go to store.benjerry.com. Use the promo code OSIRIS. Which is O-S-I-R-I-S. Yep, and you can uh, get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. Which means if you want Rob's address, stick around. We will give you Rob's address. You can send him as many of... If you're like, like, oh, I'm going to order $40 worth, spend an extra 10 Free shipping. Send it to Rob. He'll eat it, I promise. And the t-shirt was made for, for Curveball. And, um, you know, you can get these T-shirts. And that is a great gift. You can't get this these T-shirts anywhere else. So if you want to get, the, you know, something for a fish, you got a fish fan in your life who's kind of hard to shop for. They are a little hard to shop for. What are you going to get them? Uh, I already have that. I'll get them. Uh, a, I already have that. A 35-minute winter queen. Winter queen. Nah, don't do that. Just winter get queen's them. all about the jam at the end. Ben and Jerry's It's Ice. Cream. And by the way, th- we have that sponsor thanks to Osiris. Our brothers and sisters at Osiris. And also in the outro, we will co- talk about one of our s- cousin podcasts. I like that. Speaking of cousins here, right at home in Atlanta, I also want to give a big shout out to Robert Polay, Polay Clark and Associates. They are the accounting firm. It's getting that time, folks. Don't wait till April and get screwed. Call Polay and get Polayed. I really screwed that one. That up. wasn't Let's do as that smooth again. as usual. No. Let's do that again. Can we do it again? No. Come on. Are you fucking so kidding? So we, we're going to talk about some jazz here uh, because uh, this interview, Stanley knows everybody. Um, so I'm going to set the stage a little bit. First of all, the, the, if you hip-hop people have heard of Dougie Fresh, he's on the message. Now the, the bass goes over there. but now the, the, Next to the hi-hat. The, the snare's on the other side. Hey, bring out the... I'm setting the stage. Thanks, Seth. That's absolutely hilarious. Um, the, the, uh, a lot of the musicians who are involved... In, uh, uh, well, Cameron Graves, mainly. Cameron Graves is one of the main songwriters. He's a keyboardist. He's part of the West Coast Get Down. 
They've the, those are the people who work with Kamasi and Miles Mosley and, and Tony Austin out in L.A. The, these folks even like Ken, everybody from Kendrick Lamar to Corn. I'm really records with these people. Kamasi's going to be in town this week, and I really want to go. I know, but I got my son, so I'll be home. I'm going to be out of town. I've already pushed my trip back enough. Prince has worked with these people too, but that's one thing you want to know that. Um, Cameron is part of the composing, uh, a big part of the composing arm, and we talk about some specifics with that. Um, Bela Gochia Savili. Beka. Sorry, not Beka. Not Bela. Beka. Beka Gochia Savili. I ended up chatting with him after. Well, he's a keyboardist. He, Condoleezza Rice found him. You'll find out oh, in the interview. No. Actually, folks. This is a great it's story. It's a really good story. And um, really good I want to interview him someday. I ended up hanging out with him after the show because I, I met a couple who wanted to meet Stanley, and I was waiting out back. I didn't I didn't wait. They waited after I left. I could only wait so long, but I talked with Baker for a while. Really cool guy. I want to interview him. He's from Georgia. But not Atlanta, Georgia. Not baby. our no, Georgia. No, no. Georgia over Russia way. What a great story. We'll leave that for the interview, though. Right, but we've got to tell people, like Art Blakey, you hear that name thrown around. Let's, let me, let's take sure. a pause here for a second. Okay. Uh, listeners... Rob and I just did the journey of listening to this interview before we did this. Uh, yeah, that's rare for Seth. I know. I don't. Well, I just, not for me. Whatever. We're not going to sidebar on that. But we just did. I would like for you all to go ahead, grab a pen, maybe uh, some cardstock paper. I've got notes. This is education. I said I'm talking to our listeners, not right, you. Right. So go ahead and yes. take notes. And this then is good stuff. Don't just take notes. Go to your Spotify or open up Spotify when you're listening. And start highlighting some of these artists because all this music that that we've interviewed, uh, the musicians that we've interviewed, and all the music styles that we've been sharing with you through the last two years, uh, really come from a lot of these musicians that we're talking about in this interview. So, Particularly someone like Art Blakey, who while he started with, it might not mm-hmm. be interesting to you that he started in big bands in the 40s, the fact is that all these, when he became a band leader himself and had the jazz messengers, all these great musicians came through. That was like the training ground for people. Um, uh, he Blakey. played with Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, and Charlie Bird Parker, but the messengers, are musicians who came out of the jazz messengers were people like Freddie Hubbard, uh, Wayne Shorter. So Wayne. like uh, the messengers are kind of like the ARU of jazz. Um, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. A little more um, out there. Well, it's not about the out there. It's about the farming of the sure, musicians. Sure, definitely. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Whitten and Branford, the Marcellus brothers both played in Art Blakey's band. But yeah, maybe they are. the kind of the proving ground. The ARU... <laughs> That's one of I, I the the jazz messages. Uh, some of the some of those albums are some of, still some of my favorite albums to listen to. And speaking of favorite albums, uh, the classic John Coltrane uh, quintet has uh, or quartet has Jimmy Garrison on bass and McCoy Tyner on piano. McCoy, you'll hear uh, Stanley talk about an Elvin. That is the drummer from that quartet, Elvin Jones. Jones, yeah. Um, who is one of the most hard hitting drummers you'll ever see? I saw him when he was near death. He literally had a, some sort of respirator by him. When Bob Weir says, I'm going to play until I drop, that's what Elvin Jones basically did. He kept playing until he, he had a, a, literally a respirator on the side of him the stage at the end of his life. Yeah, and he just kept playing. That's what he wanted to do. Uh, Horace if Silver. You, go ahead. When you pass, Rob. Yes. Will your last breath be in <gasps> or out? I would think out. Okay. Yeah. Um. Horace Silver was a bebop guy who came up through Stan Getz found a bebop legend. He's the guy who started hard bop. As he got older, he started putting a little more muscular in it. Humphreys McGee kind of people might appreciate that. Uh, okay, he's like, like the Humphrey, hard bop is like the Humphreys McGee. You know, they like took it. They weren't afraid to have some cojones to what they did. You know what I mean? Uh, what else? Who else? George Duke. Zappa fans may know George Duke, but 
Um, and as I said, I, I met his nephew randomly when I worked for a carpet and drapery cleaning company here in Atlanta. A ranger, music director, writer, uh, producer, um, just all kind of ambassador for music. Wonderful guy. He did all kinds of stuff with Zappa. Worked with Cannonball Adderley. And as we mentioned, interview Aretha Franklin. And he and George, uh, Stanley did some work together. And we end the interview talking about Charles Mingus, who worked a lot with Charlie Bird Parker, one of the one of the people my dog's named after. Um, he brought he brought bass to the forefront even before he was like a precursor to Stanley in a way, mm-hmm. putting bass as a band leader. Uh, he was a legendary figure as a band leader composer. You're talking about Mingus right now. Mingus oh, was yeah, yeah. double bass and a Haitian collect- fight song. Still one of my favorites. I remember listening to that. Then it's like a it's no it's no like if you like fish twenty minute jams you gotta like. You gotta like. Well, Mingus. that's the thing because he's known for his composing, but he also was a big proponent. He's like kind of a pioneer of collective improvisation, uh, which Fish fans that would be type two is is sort of improv that's not within the song structure, collective ensemble, some call it. That's like real improv. That's what the Fish fans are looking for with the type two and that sort of thing. Mingus, I mean, it was a big time at a time when it wasn't as accepted as it is uh-huh. today. And what about? Uh, I mean. This has nothing to do with the interview, but Lettuce playing with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra the other day. Have you I heard about that? I didn't hear about that. That would be a great outro thing, though. Yeah, we'll talk about it then. Yeah. <laughs> Way to stay with the flow of the hey, you know, conversation. For, it's late at night. I'm tired. I'm angry. That's great. That's great. That's what you want to... What the person who's driving to work right now loves hearing that. You know what? They're probably driving home from work. And hey, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you anytime. People, a lot of people listen on planes. That's really cool. Trains and automobiles? Planes. And I always, you know, always use that bathroom before you board the plane. Uh, Rob. And then take off, uh, shortly after takeoff, use it again once the once the initial rush dies down. You got to keep your bladder clean. Yeah, but you can use the bla- you can go to the bathroom and listen to us if you have Bluetooth because the plane is wow. so close that you can actually go to the bathroom and never have to take off your headphones. Those are our most loyalists of fans. <laughs> hey, stanleyclark.com. S T A N L E Y C L A R K E. He doesn't have a lot of U.S. states in there. He's got one in Santa Monica in January. Um, does and tend to travel back through the states, though, every fall, it looks like. Well, it looks like with the message out, he said he was going to do more dates. So keep an eye on that. I imagine more dates are coming. He's in Europe now. For our European listeners, I know there's some out there. They're not Legion, but they're out there. And I want to thank RJ and Tom. Tom just had a birthday. Oh, I missed it. RJB of the Helping Friendly Podcast is really, really working hard on the Osiris, and Tom is really uh, coming up with great contests contest and stuff like that, and things are really happening. It's exciting. Absolutely exciting. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to anyone that's listening. If you missed Thanksgiving or you listened to this after Thanksgiving, well, gobble, gobble, gobble. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we present to you our interview at the City Winery with the legend Stanley Clark. We're very honored to be 
with, uh, we're at the Speakeasy here at City Winery in Atlanta, and we're with a man who is uh, not only someone who brought the bass to the forefront as an instrument, something beyond a sportive instrument, someone who's also won four Grammys, and a man who Art Blakey taught to swing and Chick Corea encouraged to compose, and now with his new CD, The Message, it seems to me Stanley Clark has doing the same with other young musicians. Yeah, you've done your homework, man. Very few people know about that Art Blakey story. Well, go ahead and tell us. That, that's well, it's great. You know, when I played with Art Blakey, I was really young. I forget, maybe 18, 19, something like that. And, um, you know, I was playing music, and uh, I didn't really swing all that well. And Art taught me there are three places on a beat, any beat, right dead on the beat, and right in front of the beat, and right in back of the beat. And I had no idea about that concept. And, uh, and he taught me, you know, certain drummers like Tony Williams that play on top of the beat, certain drummers like Elvin that plays on top and also behind the beat and dead on the beat. And so he just taught me all those different ways and approaches to play with play rhythm. And it really helped me. It's, and it's a lesson. I, I, I teach people that, that lesson. So it's a very good one. And I find all the amazing musicians you played with, I find it interesting that you seem most proud of playing... With Blakey, cutting your teeth with him. Definitely, definitely. You know, it's funny. If you talk to Chick Corea and you ask him, like, what's the proudest moment you ever had in your jazz history? And he always says that I was a jazz messenger. And there's only a few of us uh, compared to the whole array of musicians that are out there. But, uh, yeah, I, I was a jazz messenger for, like, a year and a half. And, I mean, that's... That's like, uh, you know, like guys who play with Miles Davis. You can play with Miles Davis. Or you can even go earlier. I played in Duke Ellington's band, Count Basie. But when it comes to Bob, you know, you play with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. That was, you know, you learned, you learned a lot. Just being around Art, you learn all the good and the bad things. Things you should do and things you shouldn't do. Things that you do but you know you shouldn't do. <laughs> And how, how old were you at that time, for our, for our listeners? How, how old were I was, you? I had just uh, turned 19, I think. I think I was 18 or 19 around that time, playing with them. So was this around the time Coltrane died, and you considered picking yeah. up the sax? Yeah, she really Lenny did your homework. You around. Oh, well, I love that story. Yeah, well... Thank you, Lenny White. Yeah, 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 okay, you really did it. I told Lenny, don't tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. well, you know, Coltrane was uh, probably my favorite... Uh, musician and um, I, I was really influenced by his music and, and even him what little I knew about him as a person and uh, when he died it really affected me tremendously you know so I, I swear I woke up one morning and I said I'm giving up the bass that's it and I mean I I was fairly accomplished at that point I mean I could play I was I could have played in I was training to be in an or, in an orchestra I had studied like a lot but it just was a significant uh, blow in my soul you know so I said I'm giving up the bass so I bought a saxophone <laughs> I bought a little beanie the wear why don't ask me you know, I know I know don't laugh but I bought this little beanie maybe it was my Afrocentric side you know kicking through so I get this saxophone I sound god awful just awful and I'm playing it every day every day every day so Lenny comes down to visit me from New York comes down to Philly I let him in my apartment I either he goes to the bathroom and I go back in the room and I'm picking up my saxophone because I mean I was at it I'm like a real student I know how to study I'm like going three four hours a day but just awful 
And Lenny came in, man, what are you doing? Would you put that saxophone down? We got to go. Let's go get something to eat, man. I said, man, I'm, I'm, I've, I've given up the bass. And Lenny, you know, like a good friend, sat down and said, Stanley, Stanley, Stanley. <laughs> it just reminded me, you know, what the hell I should have been doing. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny story. Lenny, Lenny promised me he wouldn't tell anybody. Oh, okay. I got some Lenny White stories, but anyway. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get to them. But they're, they're, we could do the whole interview on accolades, but yeah. there's, there's two I'd like to focus on, if you okay. wouldn't mind. And, yeah. we're, and we will talk about the message as well, of course. Yeah. But you're a per, you, you were part of a permanent exhibit at the new, I love the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. the new um, National Museum of African American Heritage. Yeah. What, what is the nature of this exhibit, and what is your, what, what, how do you play in it? Well, it, it has, you know, uh, from their view, all the um, African Americans that... Um, you know, made significant, um, uh, you know, things in, in, in music and art, literature, uh, you know, cinema. It's a tremendous thing. I, I, I think that anybody should go see it. I, I'll, I'll say one thing. You walk, you walk in this one room, and the first thing you see is Chuck Berry's red Cadillac. And if you knew Chuck Berry, I mean, his cars, he kept them impeccable because for a rock and roll, like Jeff Beck is like this too, you know, rock guitar players that have, that are in the cars. They're like, they take care of their, I mean, Jeff took care of his cars more than his guitars. You know, the guitars are laying all over the house. And Chuck's nicer to his, to his yeah, uh, cars yeah, than to people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, this car was tremendous looking. And so it has everything in there. It has, uh, it has like, so many um, uh, artifacts, so many things, you know, records and uh, just, I mean, you could literally, if a guy came from another planet, he could go in this museum, especially the section about music, and just figure it out and go, oh, okay, I see. Oh, yeah, right. It's all there. You know, you see uh, visuals, you know, audio, uh, 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 you know, visuals, uh, video and film and just everything. And the way they put it together, just that is even creative. Do they have holograms? uh, You know, they should. There's this one thing that they have that when you first look at it, you think it's a hologram, but it's not. It's like like a see-through, like a window. And they have images in there. It's really killing. And um, they have a lot of instruments in there. And so they asked me to put a bass in there. And so I, I gave them one of my early basses. And it's it's sitting in there. You know, so it's it's cool. It was kind of kind of wild because when I went to see it, I, I have a picture of this. It was this little kid, like maybe the kid was probably six or seven years old, that was captivated by the image because it's a very it's the Olympic base and it's really like it's right next to Coltrane and then uh, Roy Ayers and Herbie Hancock and I think Miles is over there and and when you look at the base I guess this kid was captivated by it and was just standing there looking at it so I'm just thinking this kid doesn't know Stanley Clark from Joe Clark but it was cool that he was looking at that maybe one day you know He'll fig, you know, figure it out and go. Oh, who's that guy? You know, it's just yeah. it's very, very cool. You know, museums are no, a nice place to document, you know, your 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 existence and what you did on the planet. You know, as long as until they blow up the, mm-hmm. the museum. You know? <laughs> and your cho- your choice okay. to go Olympic in the first place rather than Fender was is kind of a, an extension of your experimental approach. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I went with the Olympic uh, because it was it was like to the left of Fender. 
you know, and had a different sound and kind of revolutionized the sound of the bass. And then later, guys that got, this is not very widely known, but a lot of guys that got Fender basses took out their Fender electronics and retrofitted Alembic because that pop, that high, really troubly sound was not, was not a typical Fender sound. Fender's bass sounds were more muffled, and you could actually miss some notes, and the ghost notes would just was actually added to this thing. But Olympic bass, the, 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 the thing about that bass is everything comes out on it, so you have to play really clean. Sometimes it's a pain in the ass playing the Olympic, but it, 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 it checks you on your technique. <laughs> do, you, do you go around and go back to um, some of the basses you've played in the past, or do you kind of move into a new gear and kind of just Yeah, I go into it? a new gear. I mean, I, I still remember the basses that I played, and um, I kept many of them, and I had gotten so many basses, over 100 basses at one point, electric basses, and I just recently got rid of probably, I don't know, 60 of them. What do you mean? I, got rid of sold, donated, sell them because it, 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 the storage was bigger than this room here. Next time you have more to get rid of them, I know a great auctioneer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I used to. I used to give. I gave some away. I gave one to Paul McCartney. I gave. Oh. A, I had a bass that I made called Spellbinder. Me and this other guy, and we you know took it over to give it to Paul and uh, some other people. I gave basses to you know. He also sold the soundboard to Tom Petty, who we met at a Stones rehearsal. Yeah, it since uh, sold him a. A, a mixing board, I, uh, Trident Series 80B. And I bought it thinking I was going to make a studio, but it was sitting, and me and Chick bought them at the same time. He bought one and he started his studio, Mad Hatter, and mine was sitting in storage. And then somehow Tom Petty heard that I had a board in storage, brand new, just sitting there in English, Trident board. That's great sound. And, and so he bought it and put it on a boat. I heard that the boat sank, but, who knows? He never invited you on the boat to hear your story. No, I didn't want to go on the boat. To see, yeah, you know, seeing a board on a boat, that was a bit much for me. He got lucky when he found you, though. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so now there's this thing, the Montreal Jazz Festival, which is this great festival, and they yeah. have a thing called the Miles Davis Award. It's been yeah. won by John McLaughlin, Pat Metheny, oh, yeah. Sonny Rollins, Bela yeah. Fleck, Terrence Blanchard, Ornette, Michael Brecker. Yeah, it's the Montreal Jazz Festival. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not Montreal, right? Yeah, yeah Montreal, yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, it, you, you become, it becomes like you're mayor of jazz for the day. I mean, you yeah. perform everywhere. Yeah. People are covering you everywhere. Yeah, you're yeah. sitting in. Talk, yeah, talk, yeah. talk about what your day was like. Well, it was good. I mean, I had a, you know, they gave me the award. It's the heaviest award I ever got. I actually told them, please send it to me. It's literally, I don't know whether it's, it's the, the heaviest metal. You could hardly pick it up. It's, oh, it's, it's a heavy metal? I thought it was a jazz award. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's good with the jokes here, right? <laughs> okay. So, so, but this we'll thing, it was a great thing. I mean, I had, a, I played with a string quartet, played with my band, sat in somewhere, did a bunch of things, and uh, played in one big room, then a small room. It was just, I basically did a lot of things at the festival there, and it was it was just really nice how they... How they did this, you know, uh, beautiful award. They really had a wonderful thing they said, and and I gave a little speech, and uh, it was very, very cool. But boy, that is a heavy award! Wow. And you're not afraid to shine a light on other musicians, even bassists, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. There's one year at Newport that that yeah. you can still watch, and you have this yeah. amazing bassist from from Cameroon. You have a yeah. a fiddle, uh, not fiddle, violin, yeah. excuse yeah, me, yeah, yeah, yeah. a violin player from Denmark. Yeah. I mean. Uh -huh. 
it, it's yeah. just amazing. You're constantly looking for younger musicians. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I don't know. Maybe it's the influence of Miles Davis. I mean, Miles Davis was, you know, obviously Miles Davis and his music speaks for himself. But, you know, he, he I don't think he ever felt the need to to be get into the me, 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 me thing, which some musicians get into. Um I think, and, and, and not that that's wrong. It's no problem getting out on the stage and playing all the solos and no one else plays anything and they're standing in the back and you're out there with a gold lame jacket on. That's fine. I get it. <laughs> I get it. But there's also guys, and Art Blakey was like that, you know, that that understand that the history... And I, and, I, and, and, and I used to say the history of jazz music, but now I say the, in, the history of instrumental music because the term jazz is, is an undefined term, like one man's jazz is another man's whatever. But I'll say instrumental music, the, how it passes down and how it survives is to the degree that it's passed down to young people. It's, it, it, you know, all due respect to, to radio and press and magazines and books and all that, but that's not really what passes the music down. The music has to go down to the next generation, and it's, you don't really get that much help from radio. So you're not like young kids sitting by the radio listening to Charlie Parker, if Charlie Parker's even played. It has to be passed down and it's done through education and it's done like I have young players now. My hope is that they grow up and have their own bands and they hire young players and it just keeps rolling and rolling along because that's when you really study the history of jazz slash instrumental music, that's what happened. It's the, it's the musicians passing things down. I mean, all the people I played with, Art Blakey, I got great lessons. And Horace Silver was the quintessential band leader. I mean, he was, he was like, uh, like everything was so perfect, almost too perfect. But if you wanted to learn how to run a band, you play in Horace Silver's band for three days. And you, you get it. He lets you know real quick this is how it works. This is how my band works. And it was beautiful. It took me a while to actually appreciate him. I was a young, wild kid, and I was, I was like, all these rules, all this and all that. What's this, this? I jazz was freedom. I thought it was freedom. You know, just come in and play. And Do I have to really get up at 7 in the morning? Why can't I just get up at 12? There must be a flight at 1 that I can take that you're going to pay for. <laughs> you know? Nah, I wasn't like that. You know, so... Uh, Horace was great. So you have a brilliant CD coming out called mm -hmm. The Message. And I, mm -hmm. the, I feel, first of all, I think one of the messages is right, given right at the end that just mm -hmm. I'm so happy to be alive, to feel mm -hmm. this vibe. Yeah. But the, I think the best way to start it is to go to your European tour in 2015. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I mean, already was a bit tumultuous, right? Yeah, yeah. We were over there and there was some cities we couldn't go to because of uh, some, uh, some violence. That was occurring in those cities, and so I think one was Istanbul, another one was Tunisia, yeah. Tunis, I think. Oh, yeah. And uh, and so we just we didn't go. So I told the band members rather we were near Paris. I said rather than take these six days, you know, chasing down French women and drinking wine, a uh, lots of wine. Why don't you do that for two days, and take four days, and let's write some music. 
So. Thank God the record's good because it looks like you missed <laughs> yeah, out on it. Yeah. But actually, the guys got into it and spent the whole time writing. We got some equipment in there. We were lucky to stay in this hotel. Uh, the guy that was a musician, the owner of the hotel, and you know, one of those kind of hotels where every room is a different theme. You know, the Elvis room, the Miles Davis room, the this room, the that room. So he put us in the back, gave us an extra room, and the, and the guys would go write. And so they wrote music, and then we ended up recording it in Brussels, in Belgium. And uh, we stayed there, actually, and, and record was great. And then um, we came back and mixed uh, the record at my place. But in many ways, it's a European record, you know. So I was very much affected by what was happening over there. And my, this band I have now, very politically aware, let's put it that way. And but it was all recorded in Belgium, no even overdubs in the mixing process, nothing touch up? Uh, no, no, we mixed it at my house, and there were few overdubs done at my house, but the majority of the record, the meat of the record, what you hear, was done over there. And you said that um, that the writing was, was all done right then and there. How much, mm-hmm. it, how much of that was you? How much it was the bandmates? How much of your well, influence you know, this was them? the first record that I've ever done with my name on the cover that... I had so many other uh, uh, efforts. I, I said to the band, I said, you know, look, why don't all you guys write? Let's just write, you write, and, and if anything needs fixing, I'll fix it. So basically what I did, I was more like a, a, a kind of a producer. I just fixed all the tunes, flushed out all the melodies, put everything together, and you know, put the A section, the B section together, you know, but the but the ideas came from the guys and and, and also myself, you know, so, uh, but it was nice. It was a real group effort. I, re- I really had fun. And you can be specific. Cameron Graves, who's a big part of the West Coast yeah. get down, which, which is getting Cameron. young people into jazz, those people. God yeah. bless them. Yeah, Cameron is a tremendous writer, tremendous writer. I mean, I don't even think those guys utilize him uh uh, to the degree that they should, he's the best writer out of all those guys. And uh, and but Cameron uh, comes up with the wildest ideas. We had this tune, uh, the Combat Continuum. Combat Continuum. Yeah, it's man. a great I mean, piece. Yeah, like Cameron came up with this idea. I knew this guy Steve that's has been on four hundred video games. And so I said, well, why don't we put him together with this track that you've come up with? And then we did some more overdubs. It was so much fun dealing with them because it was something I would have never thought of. That's how I, I, I sort of judge a musician that I'm working with. Like if I'm working with someone and they, they have something that's significant and you can tell it's when it's something that you would never in a million years come up with. Like nothing. I would never even think of anything like that. And we put it together and it just, and as the piece developed, we were going, oh man, this is something. And we said, we hope we don't freak people out. And then when Steve came in, Steve writes stuff for video games for kids. So he put this together. And what's funny is actually when that tune comes on, like my little nieces and nephews, they go, because they recognize his voice. <laughs> they don't want to hear anything else, but they play that song. Oh, yeah, wow. Where's the game? Because <laughs> the trick with that song, it's a, it's it's a game. It's a, it's a back, it's a backdrop for a video game. That's all it is. People thought there was some heavy. There is a message to it, yeah. but but the underlying humor is that it's a video game. 
That's exactly. When you hear these little sounds in the front, this little, it's what you hear on a video game. And if you're really clever, if you're a young kid, you notice it. If you play a lot of video games. I don't. So that was very cool. So yeah, tr uh, yeah, heads up, heads off. You know, I just, Cameron, man, he was, he's something seriously creative, that guy. And after Cosmic Rain, Dance of the Planetary Prince, yeah. is him taking an old return yeah, of take, Yeah, taking a solo. And basically he plays the solo on the piece. What I did was rearranged it and stepped it up, you know, put some brass there and put some other harmony to it and did a whole new arrangement, wrote it. And then I said, you know, Planetary Prince, that's his, his, his uh, other name. I said, you're gonna run with this. And so he did and it was great. That was his first and only solo on the piece, like first and last take. And we write in Belgium, and we heard it. We went, "Wow, this is great. This is nice." And he has a CD called Planetary Prince. Yes, New yes. York Times acknowledged it. Yep. Um, you talk about uh, liking to work with musicians, kind of extending on what you just said, with excitement in their heart. And you offer Korea as an example mm -hmm. of you don't even have to be young, although it mm -hmm. certainly helps. Yeah. But. I mean, Chick Chick did such a great thing for me. I was, this was, um, I was very young and I didn't really consider myself a composer. I had written songs, but not like composer. You know, Chick is a composer. You know, he's probably writing something now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so anyway, he, uh, 
he had an album he's, that we were doing, and and he's with uh, Ayerto Moreira, Flora Porn. It was a Brazilian band. It was a Brazilian return to forever. So he said, Stanley, I really want one of your songs on there. I said, man, check. I don't have time to do this, man. Come on, this is your thing. I don't write. I mean, I like... I like to, you know, James Bond movies, and I hear the music in there. You know, it's great, man. You know, some some uh, horror silver songs, but you know, I, I wrote a couple things, but I, I don't really have the time for it. You do it. He says, "Come on, Stanley, please do it." So then he said, "Listen, if you write a song, I promise I will name the album after the name of your song." <laughs> so I said, "Get out of here." He says, "I promise I will." So I wrote this song called "Light as a Feather." And he kept his word, light as a feather. And that record and that song became, uh, there was a lot of standard songs on there, like Spain and 500 Miles High, Light as a Feather, a couple other things. And so from that point, he, in many ways, he kind of put the, the stamp on me, Stanley Clark, composer. Now, and I became a composer. I, I like every album I'd sit down really get it together and I wrote for lots of other things and eventually I got into film music but I thought about it one day in retrospect I was looking at like imagine if Chick was a different type of guy like and you know and I said ah, I don't feel like writing and he would have went eh, okay or he would have said ah, yeah you're right you're, you're a terrible writer you don't really write as good as me now, I understand would have changed everything it would have changed everything you know, there, there's a, you know, I don't know whether it's a book called Blink or not. Yeah, but yeah, that's a chart. Oh, okay. Yeah, there, there's a book that talks about how you make a little decision in life, and it's like, it's it's it changes things. It's a whole a paradigm shift, like in your life, and that that was a moment, like that that thing that chick gave me, like really changed my life. I've done 70 films over. 50, you know, ten or fifteen TV series. Starting and, with Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yeah, Pee Wee. I did all kinds of things <laughs> no. that I would have never done if if my viewpoint wouldn't have shifted from yeah, I can write a couple things to I'm a composer. Now, on that note, though, have you? Um, so that that's been very effective in your life. Mm-hmm. Have, have you turned around and noticed yourself pausing and? Giving other people that yeah, little thing. Yeah, I do it yeah, all the time. The, I, CD, I, yeah. the whole message is like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I encourage uh, everyone. The drummers have the hardest time because they're not necessarily taught traditional uh, notation. They're, they're taught rhythmic notation. And so I, and I play with a lot of drummers that, you know, have struggled with that. You know, like, God, I want to write some music and I get some help. But then there's some guys that actually, like the great Tony Williams actually, Prior to his death, he actually was studying with a composer, learning composition and arrangement techniques and things like that. And so I take a little more effort. I put a little more effort in with drummers to get them to to be able to sit down and write a tune out. Now, the beautiful thing now is we have all this music technology that, you know, you can kind of put your music in. And it'll even print the music out. But more importantly, you can create a demo. So that makes it easier now. So a lot of drummers are great producers because, you know, if you're going to create a beat with a drum machine or with a software, the drummer is going to be the best guy to do it. 
you know. But, but songwriting is an elusive thing, of course. Very. But do you believe in triggers? Like, like you tell the story about you didn't really know the Grammys. You're watching the 74 yeah. Grammys. Uh, mm-hmm. Mel Torme introduced, yeah. says you won, mispronounces mm-hmm. Chick's name, uh, yeah. Look Rexham. Yeah. And School Days, Baseline, just came right came to out. you. Yeah, yeah. And the next morning you, have, you finished it. Yeah. Well, I, I always tell, tell my kids that. I said, you know, all your education was paid with School Days. See that house you're in right now? School days. <laughs> See this other house over here? School days. You know, I mean, and it, and it came out of being so excited that we, that I heard our name on television. You got to remember back in those days. I mean, no one even knew what Miles Davis's voice sounded like. If you didn't, if you didn't know Miles, you didn't. There was, there was no MTV or you know MTV Cribs, you know, or something. You know, like. Uh, TMZ, you know. It and it's not, not like he was dying to do interviews either. Yeah, he wasn't doing any interviews anyway. And most musicians pretty much, especially jazz musicians, had just persona, like mysterious, mysterious travelers. You know, these guys are just traveling around. And uh, so when I heard our name, especially with Mel Torme and Ella Fitzgerald, I was so happy. And then we won. And then was announced on television, like one of the three channels that was on in those days. And uh, man, I just picked up the bass and came, dun, 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 just came right out. And my wife was sitting there and I said, wow, this kind of sounds kind of cool. So I wrote it down on a piece of paper and then got up in the morning and said, yeah, let me, let me finish it because I believed in finishing. So I put a B section and another little interlude section there and then put it away. And that was that. And then I recorded the next record I did, I pulled it out. Someone else said, so this guy Ray Gomez came, and I'm actually happy that Ray did it because Ray was so significant with his, his sound and it made it a little heavier. And uh, it was great. And uh, then the engineer, uh, uh, Ken Scott, who you know worked with the Beatles and all that, and David Bowie and all that stuff, and he, um, he I'll never forget, I thought, uh, not too many people know this, when I heard this track back, I said, man, you turned the bass down, man. The bass is too loud. And Ken said, 
Oh, mate, the bass is never too loud when you play like that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He turned that thing up so loud, and it kind of changed how people looked at the bass, because that's the loudest bass on a record. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, it really turned that instrument into a lead. And that's, that was in my head. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this track, you know. And, and it's, it's very cool, you know, when you, when you do something that's refreshing and you have other people around, people tend to want to contribute to it. And, and it makes it better. And whether that's in music or other invention, you know, or whatever field you're into, it's, 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 very, it's very cool. The title track is a solo piece, right, on the new one? The, the message, uh, the message. The message, yeah, yeah. Is there a message to that? Yeah, that that was, you know, it's funny. Like, um, the track, the message started out, it's a little bass solo. And then I had an old friend of mine named Pat Leonard who... Uh, was a guy that I knew when he first came to town. Then he went on and produced all those Madonna records. And uh, so uh, I called him up and he put some little synthesizer there. And, and that's just, that's like a message of love. And the bass, you don't normally associate that with love. So I really tried to make it sound beautiful and, and not sound like sexual, but right. love, affinity. And, and I think I was pretty successful with it. It's got a nice feel to it. That is kind of your lifelong ethos to yeah, make the bass yeah. sound beautiful right? yeah that's, that's what I do that's what I do and you were initially acoustic and you went electric mm -hmm. was Chick as amiable and encouraging in that way as he was yeah, in the well, he was, it was his fault really I mean we were playing our first bands it was pretty much up through Light as a Feather the first album we had one song that was on electric bass on the album just called Return to Forever. Then we did Light as a Feather. That was all acoustic. Nice. And then he says, you know, Stan, I'm thinking about doing some electric music. So I said, what does that mean? He says, well, you're going to have to play electric bass. I said, really? He says, yeah. So then I started playing electric bass more. And then it evolved. We, we got popular. And so, therefore, the electric bass had to stay. And then we brought the acoustic stuff back to introduce that to our new rock fans who had you know seen these guys playing like a hundred miles an hour but as loud as led zeppelin you know they go well I, I like that you know with improv <laughs> with improv whoa the singers aren't in the way great <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny you know i think i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about the the bach piece too and i yeah. guess the wife comes into play here she uh he's the Bach piece came up, and your wife said, yeah, I heard you try to play that before, and you yeah. got your feathers ruffled a little, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, my wife, she's from Chile, and she's very, she speaks her mind. Good for her. She, she said, you know, just speaks her mind, and she said, you know, it sounds great, but it's the middle section doesn't sound right, you know? And I said, I'll show her. <laughs> <laughs> and I just started practicing about a month and a half, because I've been playing the piece since I was young, you know. It was, it's something that you, bass players... Uh, would normally take a piece written for cello because it's difficult to play right. on the bass. And, and it really gets your technique. It really challenges you to develop your technique, right? So um, I took the piece, and, and I knew it, basically, but I didn't have it refined. So it took me about a month and a half. And, and we're then, talking five hours a day, right? You practice. Yeah, yeah, hours a day. And I had the time off, you know, so I, I did it every day. And, uh, and then uh, finally, one day, it sounded great and saw her smile. She goes, oh, it sounds really nice. And so she said, you should record it. I said, what am I going to record it for? She says, you should record that. 
you know, and, and so I recorded it. It fits. It's kind of a back to basics message. Let's yeah. remember where we all yeah. came from. Yeah. Well, you know, I did it, and I said, you know, does it doesn't really fit on the album. But I said, but I've always had albums that have things that don't fit, and that's what makes it fit. Because I do it, I guess. I had some really weird thinking on it, but I, you know, I've done so many records with so many weird things on records, it doesn't even matter anymore to me. I just put it on there, so it was cool. There's another piano player on the record, mm-hmm. and I'm going to ask you to pronounce his name. He's been in your band for five years, mm-hmm. right? Is he here tonight? Yeah. Becca? Becca Gochia Shibili. Is, is that him on uh, alter- Alternative Facts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. him and you? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Now, how yeah. do you find, where'd you find him? Well, Lenny White told me about him when he was 11 or 12 years old. He has a great story. You can make a movie about his life. He was over there. It was around the time when Russia was planning to attack that whole area. Um, I think it was when the Soviet Union was breaking up. Condoleezza Rice was over there and found him, I think, in a club. He was playing at 12 years old or 13. She is a piano player, and she said, you know, we got to get this guy out of here. So they basically got him on the plane and worked it out with the parents and brought him over here and enrolled him into Juilliard. So he got into Juilliard maybe 13, uh, 12, something like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he started playing with me at 16. And he graduated when he was, I think, 17. I think he graduated junior year 17 or 18, something like that. And uh, that's, it's an interesting... I mean, there's a whole lot more detail to the story, but that's the basic gist, is that he was saved. I mean, whatever you, you, know, whatever you think of her politics, one way or the other. But, you know, there's, there's humanity in, 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 in everyone. Some just... Less, there's less in some. <laughs> I'll put it that way. But, you know, she, had the, she was a piano player, and she saw that it was important to get him out, especially if potentially bombs were going to be dropped. You know, so she got him out of there. And, and he's, he's like a national hero in, in Georgia. She's yeah. a football fan. Maybe we should get some people for the Falcons' defense. Yeah, <laughs> maybe she should. Uh, what are the Falcons? <laughs> Skyler, is it Cole and Trevor Wesley sing on yeah. Lost in the yeah. Lost in, the, in a World? Yeah. And um, wait, wait, how how did you find them? Well, Trevor is. How did you is, choose? I'm, them? A, I'm a big fan of Trevor's. That's a guy that I want to produce. He's got a great voice. He's kind of his voice can be like country, but he understands jazz. He's a great piano player like him play harmony and standards and things like that. He's just one of these great musicians and uh, sings the way he sings. And I just um, uh, thought, we did this track and we did it in Brussels and we couldn't figure out what to do with it. And I said, you know, you know why we can't figure it out? Because this is a vocal track. And everybody went, oh, of course. Because there was nothing, the melody was not, there was really nothing there. We just had this track, it was going, and it sounded like, always sound, every time we pulled it up, like something was missing. At one time I tried to put a bass melody on top, a piano melody, and it just sounded weird. And I thought, you know what, this is a vocal track. And I said, just let me find someone to sing it. So, so yeah, so we got it. Matter of fact, a video is coming out on that uh, probably within the next month. We're shooting it right now, actually. So, do you think your work with George Duke is a lot of where you have in the mind 
vocal elements that maybe other well, instruments. With, yeah, with George, you know, you know George passed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when he had I had a nephew who lived here. Yeah, yeah. When when I worked with George, uh, he George was the consummate producer. He was a, just one of the better producers. So he he you know if he was around, he'd say, "Oh, Stanley, you know, you need to put a vocal on that." You know, I mean, uh, he, you know, he could he could hear it. Because he, he did that all the time. He produced instrumental bands, vocal bands, you know. And he wrote that way, too. He could write. He wrote some of the biggest hits out there for people. And and then he produced some records. And Aretha? Things. Yeah, yeah he's done a lot of things, George. Did so, ever, what did he say about Aretha? Ever? Hmm? Did he ever have anything to say about Aretha? Did you have interactions with Aretha? Well, yeah, I recorded on an album with her called Let Me In Your Life. Oh. And this record has so many hits on it, you know. And uh, this was many years ago, in 73, and um, 72 or 73, I'm not sure. And uh, it was a great, back in those days, you recorded, and um, the record was right there, because the rhythm section was there, the strings were there, background singers, everything. It was a great, Donny Hathaway played organ, and Bob James was there. It wasn't necessarily done live, but they all were there. No, we all did it live. You all did it live. Yeah, all the those... record was like, say, every player you hear on those records was there. That must be you so do hard it, to walk in the st- Yeah. But these guys were masters back then. Uh, Tom Dowd, I think, was there. Sure. We know him you well know, in Georgia. Yeah, so we, 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 I remember when it was done, uh, back in those days, people knew I was in- very interested in equipment. So the engineers would let me come in because I'd asked them, like, what was that? What, what, what compressor was that? And they'd say, come on in. You know, so I'd go in the control room, and the record was there. We finished recording, and there was the record. And in those days, it came out, like, you know, weeks later. Everything was much faster back then. Uh, I'm just going to pause for one second. Sure. Uh, I know that you've got a show, and you've got to eat dinner and stuff. I have so. to go to my sound check right yeah. now. So the, yeah. do you want to go ahead and close out with a yeah, question or two? Out. Close out with Mingus. Um, yeah. Can you talk about how well you knew him, what offer he made to you to collaborate, and what your memories of him? I know you did a song for him around the time he died, yeah. probably just after. Yeah, yeah. Blues well, he, yeah, Charlie wanted, wanted to do a concert at Carnegie Hall. He wanted to call it Father and Son. I said, Charlie, you're not my father. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that clear. We were eating in a restaurant, and he had the, so much food. Like He had like a platter of corn. Wow. And I was like, I was a wild kid. I'm like, man, you going to eat all that? He said, well, you want some? I said, well, no. Said, he says, well, you know, well yes, Charlie, you know, the thing about Charlie Mingus is that I learned a lot from him because, about just how to be. He could have ran a small country. He could have been a rebel in one of these countries, you know, the CIA would, would have blew him away. But he was he was that guy. He was extremely organized. He was he had a bass. He played the bass, but he was not the typical bass player mentality. You know, he, had, he was a writer. He had his own band. Most bass players were kind of a, you know, I won't say submissive, but just kind of like, you know, supportive but Charlie was a leader, 100% a leader, and he just happened to play the bass. And I just, all the times I was with him, you know, what a strength in that guy. I mean, he could have he could have gotten into politics or anything. He just was so smart and more than anything, strong, strong-minded, strong-willed. 
And um, we were going to do this concert, and we were preparing. I was starting to write. I still have what I wrote. And and he got he got sick, you know, and it just never happened, you know. All right, real quick, you talk about drummers. You say that uh, the, the spirit and the willingness to, to turn on a dime, be ferociously brave, is key. Mm-hmm. Uh, be spontaneous. More important than technique or style, right? Yeah. And Mike Mitchell, who you have with, yeah. is, is embodiment. You worked with Stuart Copeland in Animal yeah. Logic, who's yeah. a brilliant, amazing drummer. Yeah. He was in a band called Oysterhead with Trey Anastasio mm-hmm. and Les mm-hmm. Claypool, yeah. and they made a great record. Yeah. It was interesting to me, though, when they got on the road, Stuart didn't really get the improvisational side of it. Can there yeah. is that a really a different skill? And is, is that's a different skill. That's a different skill because that's a that's a composing skill. You know, when you're improvising. Really, you're composing on the spot. It's it's probably it's rather than going down on paper. It's just coming right out on your instrument. You're composing for your instrument. You're painting, you know. And and some guys do it well, and some guys don't. But what Stewart does, his concept. He's a great conceptual drummer, and the way he plays is fresh. Nobody ever played like him before him, you know. So whatever it is. And that tells me a lot about the person. You have to have a lot of courage to be yourself. It's easy to copy some. A lot of guys, you know, they pick up Coltrane records and the saxophone players play like Coltrane. I mean, anybody can do that. But to be yourself in the midst of everyone else and stand there and be strong and stand up for it, who you are. And that's in any field, in your field, in uh, a painter, a guy that writes a book. To be yourself and be like, you know, I mean, that tells you something about the person. So when Return of Forever reunites and, and you played here in Atlanta, but it was mm-hmm. late in the tour, you were improvising wildly. Mm-hmm. Does that come gradually? Because the yourself that you improvised with 25 years ago and the yeah. others have changed. Well, when you, when you improvise with people that you've improvised with before. See, I grew up with Lenny White. And Lenny White is the easiest drummer that I play with. Like, and Lenny will be 90 years old one day. And if I don't play with him until he's 90, it'll still be easy. It's just something, it's like a coded language you have. You just know how this guy thinks and it's with you. You don't have to practice it. It's just there. Chick is another one. When me and Chick play together, we don't need music. We could play a whole show, a duet show with no music. Because Tell us when and where we'll be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but then we, when you went back out without Al Miola, is that yeah. a whole other can of worms? Yeah, it's a whole bro- other thing. And but, then, you, but it's effortless? It just comes yeah, with... Yeah, it's effortless, yeah. And Al has his own unique way of playing with us. And it's, it's, um, it's very cool, man. It's a, that's, a, that's a book there. That's a, the, the art of improvisation. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, people just say, yeah, improvisation. But it's much more complex and to get inside of actually what happens from a psychological, you know, brain, uh, mind level, like what actually is happening, because it has to do with influences, similar realities. Like if you guys are musicians and you both listen to the same records, you're going to have a reality that's sitting out here, a pool of information that you pick from, say you pick this, and he'll know what that is because it's his reality, and then you go off with that. Or you may pick this over here, and then he knows that too, or you he picks this, and you know, it, it's a very, it seems complex, but it's, if you write about it, it's complex. Something that's that simple is simple, but if you have to try to explain it, you have to be complex about it. But can, it be, a, can it be a big part of what keeps you going? When you're on the road, things get a little boring, a little 
cyclical. Yeah, sure. The improv's got to be something. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that's the one. That's the healing thing. Musicians sometimes you hear them talk about the best they feel, the healthiest they feel, is right when they come off the stage. And it's true because it's your nervous system in relationship to the brain, and then your mind, and then you. It all flows together. So your first second, you know, you're you're, you're healthy as can be, and then. If you look at that telephone bill, <laughs> you know, all right, I'll leave you with this. Any more return forever? Yeah, Any chance of more? I don't know. Probably I, not. I, I never say never, but most of the guys say no, but I never say never on anything. I pushed it and pushed it. I walked Stanley back to the stage after that interview, and he wasn't as friendly as he had been early on. Um, I don't know. But then later in the night, he seemed friendly. I don't know. I might have... This this pushing the interview thing, man, I might have to you're chill. You're like a chick when it comes to interviews, because you're always like, do you think he liked me? Do you think I... Do you think he- do you think I upset? Oh my God! Do you think I upset him? Do you think, I told him a story that he already knew, and he at first he was really impressed, and then he got really angry at me. And by the way, ladies, and I'm I not that way <laughs> anywhere else in life. But then when I interview someone, suddenly I become like that. Do you think he I don't. Likes me? I don't see how it's a particularly female. It's really a female quality. You're you know saying. what? It's not a female quality. It's my ex-wife's quality. Well, hmm, I don't know if it's a quality, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, yes, Rob. Uh, I love being compared to ex-wife. It really makes my night. Well, uh, you know what? You're just like her. We both. I don't have sex with you either. 
<laughs> well, let's get it going now, baby. Well, Seth, <laughs> let's talk about Halloween. You, um, you know, I got my Dylan and my Bobby to talk about, but people want to hear about Halloween. It's it's such a special. It's it's kind of uh, related to Electric Forest. It's a, a mini version of Electric Forest. Would you say? No, not at all. I, I would not say it's a mini Electric Forest. It is its own thing. Yes, there are parallels to Electric Forest. It is string cheese. It is that generation. It is everything on the the dial. The art. It has the... I've worked the spirit of the swamp. Before I get into that, there is similarities. Yes, Rob. But it is its own thing. And I really want to define that because it is really its own thing. Can you talk about some of the new installations this year? Because there's a new permanent one. I've worked 20 years at the Spirit of the Swanee Music Park. Mm-hmm. Never have I seen any promoter come in. Should we just say, just to set the... Halloween is an annual festival in Florida at where such a said, Spirit of Swanee. Lego kind of a low-key thing. It's a very much a music festival. Low-key, 30,000-plus people. Um, right, but it's not like the Behemoth Festivals, and it's, it's not, on that yeah. little. It's on the little side on the Suwannee River. It's, it's really not cool. That small dude. Well, I don't mean to. I'm not demeaning it. I'm just saying it's it's cozy for a festival of its size. The thing and, about and the, uh, the artistic installations are part of the. Are as they much have a, holograms, a part of the music. not holograms. They have smoke going on the water with uh, pro- light projections that like you've never seen. That are images of all sorts of different things. They've got they, they bring in these. Um, they bring in these uh, sculptors that build these sculptures, and then they bring them in, and they're the, just incredible. Oh, so I heard there was one guy running around uh, around the pond, and he would bring he would uh, hold buttons up to people, and people would hit the buttons, and it would like shoot out light over the over the water or something like that. I didn't experience that, but that's the point. There's so much going on, and it's that's interactive. Yeah, and that's called Spirit Lake, and that's a whole side of it. Now they've connected one side of the park to the other side of the park creating another road another walkway i've been to this park 20 years i never gotten lost well i've gotten lost my mind there several times but i haven't gotten lost like i did like i thought i was somewhere else in the park and i'm like wait a second no i'm on the other side of the park it's very interesting they they they've utilized the park in a different way think about swanee, you can't find though, the exit like vegas casinos that's smart it's very interesting the thing about swanee though that's really really interesting when you go to a festival you got your rv camping and you got your primitive camping and you got your car camp the Spirit of the Swanee, there's over 500 RV hookups. I mean, it's primitive camping next to RV camping, all combined. So it's group camping. You're camping with your friends, and it's amazing. And then they had these... The music was phenomenal. There was a lot of hype for Jamiroquai. And oh, yeah. As good I as he was, I think that it was interesting because you had the string cheese set with their big shebang. Remember the big shebang at... Yeah, I'm not Electric a big Forest. string cheese fan, but I yeah. love that big shebang set at they Electric do. Forest. And it's similar here. So they did like all these things in the big, and they brought all Jennifer Hartswick and all these musicians. It was great. Well, you know, having that and then having Jamiroquai later, Jamiroquai, a lot of people didn't weren't familiar. It was a lot of hype. They didn't know. So the energy in the crowd, and it just got really cold. So it shifted. So it depends where you were in the crowd. Talking to different people, because some people said it was the best show they ever saw, whereas other people were like, well, I enjoyed it, but... And I think that the difference was where you were standing. I mean, it's just, it's. I, I guess that's anywhere. But it, there was a big thing like that. But it was really great. They did a great job at the lineup because here's the thing: it's twenty year olds. It's the you know you got all these twenty year olds, and then you got all these thirty year olds. It's a mix between Sweetwater Four Twenty Hippie Fest uh, and Shaky Knees. You know, with musicians like Dawes and things like that. You know, in that in that realm. And then you've got 
Uh, and then you got so string cheese. It's from eighty-eight point five on the dial to one hundred one point seven. You know. Sure, that's great. So the, well, the, maybe was, we can do interviews there one year. We well, you know, set our, up sh- set up camp down there. Sirius XM is there. Ari Fink was there. He did a great job. Um, I gotta say, Ari did a great job getting a lot of small clippative interviews and stuff. We should get Ari on the show one time. I'd like to. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Ari Ari's kind of buddy buddy with them. He knows all these people a little too well. I listen to his interviews. It's all. You feel like, and in a way, it's cool. You're eavesdropping on a conversation, and some people like that. But it's not. It's not always the most informative. It's a different type of thing. He's, but he's, he's doing another one. Of those Ask Trey, by the way, uh-huh. you fish fans, and that was really good last time. Our Ari nailed that. Picked really good questions and followed up really well, particularly the tone stuff. So fish fans, keep an eye on that. Oh, can I give a oh, shout I out to Mark Brownstein real quick? Star Kitchen, yeah, jazz right. fans listening. Uh, Mark Brownstein at Disco Biscuits and of Headcount. He now has a side project, jazz band. Just had a huge gig in Philly. Their big first real gig. Congratulations. Star Kitchen and Mark Brownstein. Go on. No, the last thing I want to say is that uh, we ran the I, my company, the work exchange team. One of my companies uh, was there managing the volunteer program, and mm-hmm. we had almost three hundred volunteers. Excellent. They were amazing. Some of the best volunteers ever. And and I love hearing that. I was really happy because Rob, I did the advance. I worked with my team, and I was able to be there. And able to network, and we had you know, Bo Jonic was there, and they, we were hooking up the artists with food, this amazing Indian food. There was I want to talk about one more thing, and then I'm gonna close out. But I wanted to say though, it was really, it was really a fulfilling thing for me to be able to be there and not have to lift a finger because I had such an amazing staff and yeah. everyone did everything properly in advance. Now, the last thing I want to say because that was that was a big thing for me. That was a big like coming of age to me. But the last thing I want to say though is they had an unofficial official or official unofficial, however you want to say it. Campground Sage. And we stumbled into it, and it was the guys from Funk You and Voodoo Visionary. And these are Atlanta bands. They're the next generation. They're that next tier. They're, they're ripe. They're like, they're where Spafford was two years ago. You know what I mean? And it was incredible, the energy and the rawness. And so what I call that is the incubator. And this is the thing I want to give, I want to give Huluween a big shout out to. They're taking an opportunity with the music festival and creating the next generation of their like headliners, that. and that is a big deal. Yes, support the younger bands. Give them a forum. Put them in front of people. I love that. Uh, one last thing. Um, you're, you'll be looking for volunteers for Electric Forest next year and probably um, uh, uh, the one in Kentucky. No, you're talking about your fan staffing. Our fan staffing. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully, we'll be doing Electric Forest. Uh, I, we've done it the last well every year. So, but what's the other one? A Firefly Music Festival, Firefly in Delaware. Like, yeah, that's happening. We'll be going live with the applications pretty soon for the fan staff. Well, that's program. not Kentucky. I'm sorry, that's Delaware. Yeah. I'm sorry. WorkExchangeTeam.com. I just want to say I saw Dylan, Bob Dylan, in Asheville. Who? Asheville, North Carolina. Who? And he has backed off the Sinatra stuff, and he is like. Very, he's not mixing up a set list much, but man, the band was nailing every song, and they were like almost every song was completely rearranged, radically Is he rearranged. Singing? He's singing pretty well, yeah. I Is guess he like very fragile uh, at points, but they're very strong at other points, you know. That and they have to adjust the keys, you know. He's not there's nothing high coming out of him anymore, of course, you know. But oh my god, it was such a great gripping show. And then three nights later, uh, if you go to relics.com, you can read my review, but I got to go my third time seeing Bob Weir at the Rhyme in three completely different lineups. And um, I listened to an episode from a while ago you where did? you were actually going to the Rhyme. To- Is that right? <laughs> yes. We were already doing the podcast? Yeah, it was. That the- was the Campfire Band one. Yeah, it was. At any rate, though, go ahead. So 
How was it? Um, it was well. It's just the Wolf Brothers. It's him, Don was, uh, and and Jay Lane on bass, and it's real raw, real cool. I mean, there are some points that are rough where it's lacking, but uh, overall, I like it. It feels like a jazz trio playing Grateful Dead music. And on the night I saw, Buddy Miller sat in for three songs. John Oates of Holland Oates sat in for a couple, and the um, vivacious and soulful Margot Price sat in on Me and My Big McGee. Margot, it's very cool. And that cool. was in Nashville, huh? Yeah, and I think and people rag on the song like Easy Answers, but I'll tell you, man, they ripped the crap out of it, and it was that's where they most felt like a jazz band. They were just throwing out, throwing around ideas and subtly deviating, letting it unfold. You're going to be seeing them in Massachusetts? Uh, no, that's because of this Billy String. We're interviewing Billy Strings, and I pushed it back. Yeah, that's why I'm not going to be seeing Bobby, but that's fine. I really want to interview Billy Strings right now. The time is now. Well, actually, not right now. One. It's tomorrow. Sure. Yes. Okay. <laughs> But thank you all for listening. If you're still listening at this point, please, please. go to iTunes. <laughs> iTunes. iTunes review. We need reviews and tell friends we need numbers. Now that we have sponsors, we need more numbers. Go back and listen to if you haven't done so already. Tell people if you're a fan of the infamous String Ducters, Dusters, or uh, and Leftover Salmon. We had a fantastic interview with them. We really enjoyed our time. It's our last episode. It's out. It's called uh, Salmon Dusters, and it's fun. We're going to try to do more hybrid interviews like that when we can. But we can't if you don't listen. Yeah, we need you to listen. It's only like 800 people to listen or something. We need more than that. That's not impressive. No, but you know what, though? I want to uh, give a big shout-out to our engineer, Josh Thane. I don't know if you know this, folks. Uh, Josh Thane got a job in the podcast world. Yes. He's working for How Things Are Made. Right. Um, big and time. they just got bought by... Um, iHeartMedia, and he's working. And I don't know the show. It's a show that's not. It's a second, second season of a show, uh, but it's one of those really big ones, like really, 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 really big ones. And Harris Sullivan for all the social media help as well, and for helping us on uh, release days and everything. And he's busting his ass working like eighteen jobs now. I think. Uh, well, no, you know what? Um, he was really drunk. He was doing a. Um, he was doing. He was getting his sommelier. Cert- well, he's, please don't he's, disparage our help. Going- this is a joke. He was not drunk. No, no, I'm serious. Oh, this is not a joke. Harris. He, yeah, he did. He told you he was working 18 jobs. He was drinking like for 18 people because he was learning all the different wines for his test. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I gotcha. Uh, happy holidays. Be safe, everyone. Don't fuck up. Get a lift. Get an Uber. Don't get in a car if you're drunk. It's not worth it. And don't get annoyed. I know I know things get cheesy at the holidays, but what the heck? Just roll with it. Give the Salvation Army guys some money. Have some have some fun with the holidays. Don't be don't be too much of a of a rob. And don't be too joyous and annoying either, you know? Maintain some cynicism as well. Have a nice balance in this holiday season, everybody. Right, Seth? I think so. And I want to thank uh yes. Telefunken. And their U47? M80 mic. No, Telefunken. just like a Telefunken U47. Well, this is a Telefunken M80. I'm really enjoying this mic. You'll love it. Telefunken, if you're listening, we, we, we like your microphone, so go ahead and sponsor us so we can talk about it more. It's a way of life.